about unity, the first thing that came to my mind was the Synthic Orchestra. When I was younger, I always realized that these groups, these symphonies, were producing sound or theme, uh, but I never realized all of the components that really go into it. Uh, that many of the instruments are playing only one note at a time, but with uh, uh, they're all playing one note at a time, and when each instrument is played individually, it may seem like some of them are playing something that isn't necessarily recognizable or important, but when you put it all together, the entire group is producing this massive, sweet mixture of, of melody and harmony that uh, with a hundred or so people playing, together really stirs up the emotions, whether it's a Beethoven symphony or a, or a Stravinsky suite or a John Williams film composition. Uh, the fact that one can take a piece of music written for a piano that one person plays with, with ten fingers and you can expand it out into a hundred different instruments to play that thing like uh, Ravel did with Mussorgsky's Pictures on an Exhibition, like my orchestration class tried to do in college. Uh, even though we didn't do it as well as Ravel did uh, with one of our assignments. But, but, uh, but you can take these piano pieces and you can build it out and write it for hundreds of instruments to play together. It's, it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, but these are all wonderful testaments, whether it's a sports team or the symphony orchestra, to how many people, many different people, can work together to accomplish a common goal. Look at the structure of of buildings and houses, how they're designed, how the framework and the foundation is laid, and then the electrical and wiring is put in, and floors and walls and ceilings and paint and decor are added. Or look at how military groups sneak through hostile areas unnoticed without even saying a word, using hand signals. And at the same time, they can stand at attention, stand calm and cool and collect while orders are being marked at them by the superiors. Look at how hospital staff can take in a patient who's been in a, a severe accident. And technicians and nurses work to stabilize the patient and prepare rooms and beds and, and tools while the doctors prepare mentally to perform an emergency surgery that could take hours to repair, damage, or stop bleeding. In each one of these situations, there are uh, plenty, and there are plenty more uh, situations and instances out in the world, but people are performing their specific tasks within a group to meet a common goal. So why is it so hard for the church to do the same thing? That's a partially rhetorical question. Why is it so hard for our church to do the same thing? For Oakwood Bible Church to do the same thing? Why is it so hard for the church of churches down the street to do that same thing? We're the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's the ruler of heaven and earth, the bringer of true salvation, the one true God, and yet we constantly struggle to be united in our I hope that's a little bit convicting for you all today. It's been convicting for me as I've been reading through this passage study through. So we're looking at the first half of Ephesians 4 today, verses 1 through 16, talking about being united in Christ. And let's look briefly at the context before we get into the text. Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians was most likely written uh, during his uh, two-year 
house arrest that we uh, read about in Acts 28. Um, he also wrote the uh, letter to the Colossians during this time. And um, uh, he's, under, he's under house arrest, but he's still finding time to reach out and to, to minister to the churches that he helped establish, people that he loved so much. These are people that Paul has spent years pouring into and suffering for. And uh, Pastor Brad took us through Acts last year, and we saw much of, when, much of what Paul and Luke and others had endured in order to take the gospel around Rome, around the known world at the time. And so we see that these people are still important to him, even when he's on house arrest. The grace of the Lord has truly made Paul a man of God, as we can see evidence by his love in the church, as he continues to be in it. So looking at the book of Ephesians, this is a pretty standard letter format. It has an opening, a body, a conclusion. But the theology of this letter is so rich that some people have been tempted to characterize it as an essay or a sermon, not just a mere letter. But an essay or a sermon, like a bunch of Hebrews uh, people say as well. And so in this letter, we get Paul's summation of the gospel. The first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, Paul holds explanation uh, of the, uh, uh, excuse me, the first half holds Paul's explanation of the Trinity's work in redemption and our salvation. The second half, chapters 4 through 6, shows us how we are to live in light of our calling and the wonderful inheritance that we have through Christ, which Paul explains in the first couple of chapters. And the text that we're looking at this morning is the beginning of that second half. So let's look at this passage, and then we'll start to break it down. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above, above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray before we dig into these texts. Dear Father in heaven, we ask that, uh, Lord, you give us the spirit of unity, that we would recognize that as a church, our, our one goal is to glorify you, to 
honor you in everything that we do, to do so gladly, and to do so fervently, and to do so earnestly. And Lord, I pray that as we gather together on Sunday mornings, as we gather together for special events or special services, or community events, or weekly Bible studies, or life groups, Lord, that you are always our focus, that, that glorifying and honoring you as we gather together is always our goal. Lord, that we would do that in a way where we set aside our, our personal preferences, we set aside the, the things that we think are important, the traditions that we think that are important, the, the new progressive ideas that we think that are important. Lord, that we take all of those personal preferences, those personal things, and we set those aside in order to minister to each other, to love each other. Lord, so that you may be glorified through that, so that you may be glorified when we do those things. So, Lord, open up our hearts and our minds to this passage today. Lord, use me to communicate these truths to this church, to myself, to those who are watching online or to, who might be listening or, or whatever the situation may be. Lord, just use me as an instrument. Lord, remove me from the equation. Use me to communicate your truth this morning. So bless our time together as we study the world. So the first part, point in our outline this morning is this. As the Church of Christ, we are called to be walking in unity. As the Church of Christ, we are called to be walking in unity. Look at the passage. Paul kicks off the second half uh, of, this, uh, of, of this book, uh, this letter, uh, with a therefore. If you remember last week, Pastor Nick had a therefore in uh, the, the passage that he was teaching from. And these, uh, these therefores are meant to uh, make us consider what's being said a light of what was just said. Okay? So Paul's going to mention, because of these things that I just said, then this. Right? Um, as, as Nick mentioned last week, we all know, these letters weren't written with verses and chapters in mind. So there's not a split in Paul's thought. Paul's transitioning his thought into something else here. So when we see a therefore, we need to consider the context of what was just said. As I heard somebody put it one time, what is therefore, therefore? Right? When you're looking at, when you're reading through these things, and you see a therefore, you don't know the context of what's going on, go back. Read what was said before. Read, read the chapter before. Read the rest of the book before, if you have to. Figure out the context. What is therefore, therefore? I always love that. So as we mentioned in the first half of this letter, Paul is reiterating the gospel by explaining the power of the Trinity around our salvation. And so the therefore here starts to mark the transition in Paul's letter from principle to practicality. He laid the groundwork for the doctrine in, in chapters 1 through 3, and now is the time to put it into practice. So here's how. Paul mentions his imprisonment, and maybe this wasn't his intention, but it's almost as if he's saying, this is what our belief put into practice looks like. It's a gentle reminder, whether or not it's intentional, that the walk of a faithful Christian is a costly walk. 
When Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a worthy manner, he's talking about our daily walk, our constant conduct as faithful Christians. You have been called as a child of the Lord to walk in a holy manner, just as the Lord is holy. Right? We've heard this before, Leviticus 11.25, 19.2, 27, 20, 26, 21.8. The Lord calls us to be holy because he is holy. So what does this worthy walk look like? Paul gives us some ideas of the starting point. This isn't an exhaustive list. This is the starting point. That he mentions here in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance and love. And what does this all lead to? It shows that we are being diligent to preserve unity in our church, in our body. Humility. Uh, if we turn to uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to see some, uh, some, some of the things that Paul is talking about here uh, when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Humility is in Matthew 5, 3. said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't say the word humility. It doesn't say blessed are the humble. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. But this is what Paul is talking about. This is it's the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's recognizing our deprived and depraved spiritual state without the Lord. Blessed are the poor we have gentleness, self-controlled, and mild-spirited. This is the natural process of recognizing our humble state before the Lord. It's only uh, a kind of supreme self-control produced by the Holy Spirit, as we see when Paul gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We see Jesus mention this gentleness again in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We have patience. Patience, the kind of long-suffering that comes from being humble. These three things then produce an unconditional, unconditional, continuous love for one another. That tolerance that we have for each other. When we are humble, when we are gentle, when we are patient with each other, it gives us brings that love for one another, that tolerance that we have. Although all of our personalities, our careers, our life goals, they all may be different, we are still one church in Christ with one ultimate goal, to worship the Lord. And when we do this together, we are earnestly working toward unity in the Spirit. We can turn back to our text in Ephesians 4. And so the reason for that unity is mentioned in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one body. Every, every believer as part of one group, the children of the Lord, and we are held together 
by the work of the one Spirit. We are all called to the one same hope, the hope of our inheritance that Paul already mentioned in this letter back in chapter 1, of which the one Spirit is our seal. Again, Paul has already mentioned these things, and now he's, he's introducing the practice of it. One Lord is pretty self-explanatory, right? The same Lord who is Lord of all, Romans 10, uh, Romans 10 verse 12. One faith, the common salvation mentioned in Jude 3, to which we are called. With one baptism, we all as believers make this public confession of faith, or at least are called to, and through our faith are placed into the one body of Christ. One God, again, self-explanatory, one of the most simple doctrines that we read in the Bible. But we are all not on the same path. We don't all experience this, the exact same grace. And so when we get to verse 7, it's almost, uh, it's almost as if Paul is saying, however. Um, he's starting to, to contrast these moments of unity to what we'll soon read about when it comes to our uniqueness. And so in these first seven verses, we see how we are to walk in unity. And now, in daily walking together in our common goal, we are to use our unique gifts and personalities as we come to our second point. As the Church of Christ, we are called to be ministering in unity. So our first point, we are called to be walking in unity, and now we are called to be ministering Paul kicks off this point uh, here in uh, uh, verse 8 uh, by quoting Psalm 68, 18. Psalm 68, 18 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captains in your train. So Paul quotes that. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captains and he gave gifts to men. The power in Christ's resurrection firmly established his role as king as the only one who had the right to bestow spiritual gifts. This hymn, Psalm 68, was a victory hymn where the king would return from battle, bringing back the spoils and the prisoners. And so as Christ descended to the earth to accomplish his earthly mission, he had returned to heaven triumphant as after the resurrection and the ascension, and through conquering sin and death has freed those who believe from the pangs of sin and death. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. And after this glorious victory that the Lord has, he sends the Spirit to distribute the spoils and gifts throughout his kingdom. So that's what Paul is explaining here in verses 8 and 9 and 10. And when we get to verse 11, we see those gifts description of them. And so, of those he gifted, some were apostles. We're not all apostles, right? There's a specific group that the Lord had that he named his apostles. These men were face-to-face -face with Christ, chosen to lay the foundation for Christ's church, Ephesians 2, 19b through 20, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. These men uh, were to be the recipients of and declare God's words 
Ephesians 3, the chapter before this one, says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. These men were tasked with confirming that word through wondrous miracles and amazing signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The apostle is truly a unique calling given to only a few. And very similarly with prophets, although their role was a little bit different from the apostles. But we also have the evangelists, meant to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. We have the pastors and teachers, leaders in the church, our elders and pastors here, who work to shepherd us and care for us in this congregation. These are the gifts that Christ gave to his church. Verse 12 says, equipping, meaning we don't have this power in ourselves, but these gifts are uniquely given to each one of us to build up the one body. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 20. First Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 20. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Every part of the body is essential to the function of that body. That applies to our physical bodies, but how much more? Does that apply to the body of Christ? Paul is giving this, this uh, analogy here with uh, our physical bodies. All of our parts of our bodies are essential for our body to function properly. So how much more does that apply to the body of Christ? All of our roles here in the church are essential to this church functioning properly. And so we must do it together. So turning back to our text in Ephesians 4, we see how we are called to be walking in unity and ministering in unity in the last section of, this, of these verses. Verses 13 through 16, we see our third point. As the Church of Christ, we are called to be firmly planted together in Christ. Look at verse 13. Unity of the faith. Our oneness and our harmony as a church is only possible when built upon, upon sound doctrine. It's not unity of our dress code. It's not unity of opinion of whether or not we should sit in pews or chairs. It's not unity of what keys we sing the songs in, although we all want to sing the same key, right? 
It's the unity of our faith, the faith that Paul just described for this church in the first half of this letter. The faith of, as Paul goes on to mention, the knowledge of the Son of God. This is not just knowledge about what salvation is or how to go through the motions, but it's knowledge that we obtain as we pray, as we study God's Word, and as we are obedient to His commands. The last time I taught, uh, we talked about the beginning of this knowledge and how it means obeying the Lord in practice, right? It was in Proverbs. Who remembers what the beginning of knowledge is that we talked about last time? What's the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. That's right, the fear of the Lord. And what's the fear of the Lord that we talked about? It's keeping His commandments. Paul goes on to say, To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Because Christ alone is the standard for spiritual maturity and perfection. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ is our standard. And the closer we get to achieving that standard, guess what, we'll never do it. But I hope that we keep trying and keep getting closer, regardless of the fact that we'll never do it. But the closer we get to achieving this standard, the less we are like children in our faith. This means the more mature we get in our faith. The more we start to understand, and the more we are grounded in our knowledge of Christ. The more grounded we are in Him, the less we will succumb to false teaching or worldly values and standards. It's a very popular thing right now for people on the internet to go out and talk about deconstructing from their faiths. It's very trendy. It's a hugely trendy thing, and there are people, there are famous people who are going out and talking about it, and they're making money uh, talking about how proud they are to deconstruct, how they don't buy into traditional Christianity or whatever faith they're deconstructing from. And what you find is these people who are following this path really have never had much of a strong foundation in their faith to begin with. They didn't cling and hold tightly to Christ in their doubts. As they had questions, as they had doubts, as they were hurt by people in the church, they turned to seek refuge elsewhere rather than turning to Christ. Does this mean that they're solely responsible for their actions? No, actually, it doesn't. They are responsible, but if we aren't answering their questions and doubts with love and grace as a church, and if we're not taking responsibility for how we hurt people in our church, and if we're not seeking repentance and forgiveness, then why wouldn't they look elsewhere for answers? This is how the bonds of our unity become broken, and it's how people start to look elsewhere for care and for answers. They fall ensnared to tricky, crafty, and deceitful men, as we see here in verse 14. So what are we to do but to speak truth in love, just as Christ worked in our own hearts? In love, Ephesians 1.4. Again, something that Paul already mentioned we do this so that we can grow in all aspects into Christ. Remember, Christ is the standard. He had love and grace and mercy for us, even when we were sinners, Romans 5.8. While we were at enmity with God, James 4.4. 4. 
So if Christ is the standard, why wouldn't we love each other in the same way that Christ has loved us? This only happens when all of us work together towards these goals. When all of us are firmly planted in Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for building up of itself in love. Are we doing these things in love? Are we supporting each other in love? Or are we doing it to get something in return? Are we doing it to fit our own preferences for things? As we go to uh, move to the communion table, this is a wonderful way for us to put to practice our unity in Christ, partaking in these elements together, as Christ has commanded us to do. So we think on these things. We think on the fact that there are a slew of us in this church who all have different personalities, different jobs, different things, different homes that we go to when we leave this church, different families that we go to who are all going through their own things, right? Yet, when we are here, or when we are together, whether it's in this building or elsewhere, we are joined in one common goal, to worship and glorify the Lord above all else. So we remember that today as we move to the communion table. Here at OBC, at Oakwood Bible Church, we have an open communion table. That means that if you are a believer in Christ, you can uh, partake with us in these elements. You don't have to be a member of this church. As long as you are a believer, as long as you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can join with us. Again, we have the elements, the, the bread and the cup. We'll talk about what those represent in a second. If you have children with you here right now and they're asking questions about uh, what communion means, uh, we would ask that, uh, that you would make sure to take the time to, to talk to the kids about what it means to uh, have faith in Jesus Christ before they partake in the elements. Make sure they understand that it's not just snack time here at church today. And uh, if it is, honestly, these aren't very young. <laughs> but that they understand what it really means that we are remembering Jesus Christ when we partake together with the bread and the cup. And so the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, issues this admonition to all who consider partaking in the bread and the cup. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The word examine here means to test, to examine, to prove, to scrutinize, to see whether something is genuine or not. In other words, are you truly in Christ? Have you given your life completely to Jesus Christ? Have you genuinely placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior for all he has done on your behalf in paying for your sin once and for all? There should be no hypocrisy here. If you haven't given your life to Christ, 
We don't want to ask you to participate in something that you don't believe in. So if you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you haven't, let the elements pass by as a witness to you. But even better yet than doing that, we ask that you would turn away from the direction that you've been going in your life. Turn to Christ in faith for your salvation. Receive him as your Lord and your Savior right now. Invite him into your heart and life right now. Don't wait any longer. And then please join us in remembrance together. So we can all open our communion packets together. Make a little noise. Classic Easter. And as we partake, uh, as we prepare to partake of the bread and the cup, uh, please hold both elements. We'll thank the Lord for the bread and the cup separately. Um, during this time of preparation, I encourage you to be in prayer. Examine your own heart, even if you have uh, professed faith in Christ and, and, um, and have received Him as as your Savior. Be examining your heart. Seek forgiveness and deliverance. Renew your commitment to him. And remember with thanksgiving his sacrifice for you on the cross. That he paid your penalty for all your sins once and for all. Let's take a minute of silence here to pray and examine our own hearts. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. Humbled at your wondrous grace and mercy. Humbled by your, your great power and your mighty works. Humbled by your holiness, your righteousness, your judgment. Lord, you are the ultimate standard for everything that we do. Lord, I ask that everything that we do, we would do in order to glorify you, in order to honor you by pursuing that standard. Lord, we don't do that perfectly. We never will do that perfectly, but Lord, your Son has done that perfectly. So may we look to him for that perfect standard. Lord, we thank you for your Son that you sent to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, showing your power over sin and death, and the victory that you have over all things, over this world. Lord, you are the great King of Kings and the great Lord of Lords. I ask that we remember that today as we go about the rest of our day, considering how we can walk in unity, how we can minister in unity, how we can firmly plant ourselves together as a church on the foundation of your word, of your Son. So, Lord, may we consider how we can do those things in love, in all humility, recognizing our low spiritual state without you. Lord, we are not good people. You have loved us. You have saved us. Lord, you've shown us what it means to love. So may we pursue that, Lord, with gentleness and meekness, not seeking to Lord over people or overpower somebody to get what we want, but Lord, that we would submit to a Christ-like love so that 
you can really see what those people need. Or with patience, instead of coming out guns of blazing and, and never being silent and listening to each other. We're tolerating each other in love, giving grace to every single person. We all need grace. We all need your grace. But we all need grace from each other as well. Lord, may this show that we are being diligent in our goal to be united in you. To be a church who seeks to love you and through that, love your people and love this community. Or may we pursue unity as one body as we look to do that. Lord, as we go on our way today, would you Keep the truth of your word on our hearts. Lord, help us to be changed people different than we were when we came in this building this morning. As we go out amongst family and friends, amongst this community, work and school. Lord, help us to take you with us wherever we go. Everything that we day, that may everything that we do and everything that we say today bring you honor and glory. It's in your name that I pray. Thank you very much, Jerusalem.